Section 29 The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Transcendental Doctrine of Elements Part 2nd Transcendental Logic Second Division Transcendental Dialectic Book 2 of the Dialectical Procedure of Pure Reason Chapter 2 The Antinomy of Pure Reason Sections 7 and 8 Section 7. Critical Solution of the Cosmological Problem The antinomy of pure reason is based upon the following dialectical argument. If that which is conditioned is given, the whole series of its conditions is also given. But sensuous objects are given as conditioned, consequently. This syllogism the major of which seems so natural and evident, introduces as many cosmological ideas as there are different kinds of conditions in the synthesis of phenomena, insofar as these conditions constitute a series. These ideas require absolute totality in the series, and thus place reason in inextricable embarrassment before proceeding to expose the fallacy in this dialectical argument, it will be necessary to have a correct understanding of certain conceptions that appear in it. In the first place, the following proposition is evident and indubitably certain. If the conditioned is given, a regress in the series of all its conditions is thereby imperatively required. For the very conception of a conditioned is a conception of something related to a condition, and, if this condition is itself conditioned to another condition, and so on, through all the members of the series. This proposition is, therefore, analytical, and has nothing to fear from transcendental criticism. It is a logical postulate of reason to pursue, as far as possible, the connection of a conception with its conditions. If, in the second place, both the conditioned and the condition are things in themselves, and if the former is given, not only is the regress to the latter requisite, but the latter is really given with the former. Now, as this is true of all the members of the series, the entire series of conditions, and with them the unconditioned, is, at the same time, given in the very fact of the conditioned, the existence of which is possible only in and through that series being given. In this case, the synthesis of the conditioned with its condition is a synthesis of the understanding merely, which represents things as they are, without regarding whether and how we can cognize them. But if I have to do with phenomena, which, in their character of mere representations, are not given, if I do not attain to a cognition of them, in other words, to themselves, for they are nothing more than empirical cognitions, I am not entitled to say, if the conditioned is given, all its conditions as phenomena are also given. I cannot, therefore, 
from the fact of a conditioned being given, infer the absolute totality of the series of its conditions. For phenomena are nothing but an empirical synthesis in apprehension or perception, and are therefore given only in it. Now, in speaking of phenomena, it does not follow that, if the conditioned is given, the synthesis which constitutes its empirical condition is also thereby given and presupposed. Such a synthesis can be established only by an actual regress in the series of conditions. But we are entitled to say, in this case, that a regress to the conditions of a conditioned, in other words, that a continuous empirical synthesis is enjoined, that, if the conditions are not given, they are at least required, and that we are certain to discover the conditions in this regress. We can now see that the major, in the above cosmological syllogism, takes the conditioned in the transcendental signification which it has in the pure category, while the minor speaks of it in the empirical signification which it has in the category as applied to phenomena. There is, therefore, a dialectical fallacy in the syllogism, a sophisma figurae dictionis. But this fallacy is not a consciously devised one, but a perfectly natural illusion of the common reason of man. For, when a thing is given as conditioned, we presuppose in the major its conditions and their series, unperceived, as it were, and unseen, because this is nothing more than the logical requirement of complete and satisfactory premises for a given conclusion. In this case, time is altogether left out in the connection of the conditioned with the condition. They are supposed to be given in themselves and contemporaneously. It is, moreover, just as natural to regard phenomena, in the minor, as things in themselves and as objects presented to the pure understanding, as in the major, in which complete abstraction was made of all conditions of intuition. But it is under these conditions alone that objects are given. Now, we overlooked a remarkable distinction between the conceptions. The synthesis of the conditioned with its condition, and the complete series of the latter and the major, are not limited by time, and do not contain the conception of succession. On the contrary, the empirical synthesis and the series of conditions in the phenomenal world, subsumed in the minor, are necessarily successive, and given in time alone. It follows that I cannot presuppose in the minor, as I did in the major, the absolute totality of the synthesis and of the series therein represented. For in the major, all the members of the series are given as things in themselves, without any limitations or conditions of time, while in the minor they are possible only in and through a successive regress, which cannot exist except it be actually carried into execution in the world of phenomena. After this proof of the viciousness of the argument, 
commonly employed in maintaining cosmological assertions, both parties may now be justly dismissed as advancing claims without grounds or title. But the process has not been ended by convincing them that one or both were in the wrong, and had maintained an assertion which was without valid grounds of proof. Nothing seems to be clearer than that, if one maintains the world has a beginning, and another the world has no beginning, one of the two must be right. But it is likewise clear that, if the evidence on both sides is equal, it is impossible to discover on what side the truth lies, and the controversy continues. Although the parties have been recommended to peace before the tribunal of reason, there remains, then, no other means of settling the question than to convince the parties, who refute each other with such conclusiveness and ability, that they are disputing about nothing, and that a transcendental illusion has been mocking them with visions of reality where there is none. The mode of adjusting a dispute which cannot be decided upon its own merits, we shall now proceed to lay before our readers. Zeno of Elia, a subtle dialectician, was severely reprimanded by Plato as a sophist, who, merely from the base motive of exhibiting his skill in discussion, maintained and subverted the same proposition by arguments as powerful and convincing on the one side as on the other. He maintained, for example, that God, who was probably nothing more in his view than the world, is neither finite nor infinite, neither in motion nor in rest, neither similar nor dissimilar to any other thing. It seemed to those philosophers who criticized his mode of discussion that his purpose was to deny completely both of two self-contradictory positions, which is absurd. But I cannot believe that there is any justice in this accusation. The first of these propositions I shall presently consider in a more detailed manner. With regard to the others, if, by the word of God, he understood merely the universe, his meaning must have been that it cannot be permanently present in one place, that is, at rest, nor be capable of changing its place, that is, of moving, because all places are in the universe, and the universe itself is, therefore, in no place. Again, if the universe contains in itself everything that exists, it cannot be similar or dissimilar to any other thing, because there is, in fact, no other thing with which it can be compared. If two opposite judgments presuppose a contingent, impossible, or arbitrary condition, both, in spite of their opposition, which is, however, not properly or really a contradiction, fall away, because the condition, which ensured the validity of both, has itself disappeared. If we say, every body has either a good or a bad smell, we have omitted a third possible judgment. It has no smell at all. And thus, both conflicting statements may be false. If we say, 
it is either good-smelling or not good-smelling, vel suavolens, vel non-suavolens, both judgments are contradictorily opposed, and the contradictory opposite of the former judgment, some bodies are not good-smelling, embraces also those bodies which have no smell at all. In the preceding pair of opposed judgments, per disparata, the contingent condition of the conception of body, smell, attached to both conflicting statements, instead of having been omitted in the latter, which is consequently not the contradictory opposite of the former. If, accordingly, we say, the world is either infinite in extension or it is not infinite, non est infinitus, and if the former proposition is false, its contradictory opposite, the world is not infinite, must be true. And thus I should deny the existence of an infinite without, however, affirming the existence of a finite world. But if we construct our proposition thus, the world is either infinite or finite, non-infinite, both statements may be false, for, in this case, we consider the world as per se determined in regard to quantity, and while, in the one judgment, we deny its infinite and, consequently, perhaps, its independent existence, in the other, we append to the world, regarded as a thing in itself, a certain determination, that of finitude, and the latter may be false as well as the former, if the world is not given as a thing in itself, and thus neither as finite nor as infinite in quantity. This kind of opposition I may be allowed to term dialectical. That of contradictories may be called analytical opposition. Thus, then, of two dialectically opposed judgments, both may be false, from the fact that the one is not a mere contradictory of the other, but actually enounces more than is requisite for a full and complete contradiction. When we regard the two propositions, the world is infinite in quantity and the world is finite in quantity, as contradictory opposites, we are assuming that the world, the complete series of phenomena, is a thing in itself. For it remains as a permanent quantity, whether I deny the infinite or the finite regress in the series of its phenomena. But if we dismiss this assumption, this transcendental illusion, and deny that it is a thing in itself, the contradictory opposition is metamorphosed into a merely dialectical one, and the world, as not existing in itself, independently of the regressive series of my representations, exists in like manner neither as a whole which is infinite nor as a whole which is finite in itself. The universe exists for me only in the empirical regress of the series of phenomena, and not per se. If, then, it is always conditioned, 
it is never completely or as a whole, and it is therefore not an unconditioned whole and does not exist as such, either with an infinite or with a finite quantity. What we have here said of the first cosmological idea, that of the absolute totality of quantity and phenomena, applies also to the others. A series of conditions is discoverable only in the regressive synthesis itself, and not in the phenomenon considered as a thing in itself, given prior to all regress. Hence, I am compelled to say, the aggregate of parts in a given phenomenon is, in itself, neither finite nor infinite, and these parts are given only in the regressive synthesis of decomposition, a synthesis which is never given in absolute completeness, either as finite or as infinite. The same is the case with the series of subordinated causes, or of the conditioned up to the unconditioned and necessary existence, which can never be regarded as in itself, and in its totality, either as finite or as infinite, because, as a series of subordinate representations, it subsists only in the dynamical regress, and cannot be regarded as existing previously to this regress, or as a self-subsistent series of things. Thus, the antinomy of pure reason in its cosmological ideas disappears. For the above demonstration has established the fact that it is merely the product of a dialectical and illusory opposition, which arises from the application of the idea of absolute totality, admissible only as a condition of things in themselves, to phenomena which exist only in our representations, and, when constituting a series, in successive regress. This antinomy of reason may, however, be really profitable to our speculative interests, not in the way of contributing any dogmatical addition, but as presenting to us another material support in our critical investigations. For it furnishes us with an indirect proof of the transcendental ideality of phenomena. If our minds were not completely satisfied with the direct proof set forth in the transcendental aesthetic, the proof would proceed in the following dilemma. If the world is a whole existing in itself, it must be either finite or infinite. But it is neither finite nor infinite as has been shown on the one side by the thesis, on the other by the antithesis. Therefore the world, the content of all phenomena, is not a whole existing in itself. It follows that phenomena are nothing apart from our representations, and this is what we mean by transcendental ideality. This remark is of some importance. It enables us to see that the proofs of the fourfold antinomy are not mere sophistries, are not fallacious, but grounded on the nature of reason and valid, under the supposition that phenomena are things in themselves. 
the opposition of the judgments which follow makes it evident that a fallacy lay in the initial supposition, and thus helps us to discover the true constitution of objects of sense. This transcendental dialectic does not favor skepticism, although it presents us with a triumphant demonstration of the advantages of the skeptical method, the great utility of which is apparent in the antinomy, where the arguments of reason were allowed to confront each other in undiminished force. And although the result of these conflicts of reason is not what we expected, although we have obtained no positive dogmatical addition to metaphysical science, we have still reaped a great advantage in the correction of our judgments on these subjects of thought. End section 7 Section 8 Regulative Principle of Pure Reason in Relation to the Cosmological Ideas the cosmological principle of totality could not give us any certain knowledge in regard to the maximum in the series of conditions in the world of sense considered as a thing in itself. The actual regress in the series is the only means of approaching this maximum. This principle of pure reason, therefore, may still be considered as valid, not as an axiom enabling us to cogitate totality in the object as actual, but as a problem for the understanding, which requires it to institute and to continue, in conformity with the idea of totality in the mind, the regress in the series of the conditions of a given conditioned. For, in the world of sense, that is, in space and time, every condition which we discover in our investigation of phenomena is itself conditioned, because sensuous objects are not things in themselves, in which case an absolutely unconditioned might be reached in the progress of cognition, but are merely empirical representations, the conditions of which must always be found in intuition. The principle of reason is therefore properly a mere rule, prescribing a regress in the series of conditions for a given phenomena, and prohibiting any pause or rest on an absolutely unconditioned. It is, therefore, not a principle of the possibility of experience or of the empirical cognition of sensuous objects, consequently, not a principle of the understanding, for every experience is confined within certain proper limits determined by the given intuition. Still less is it a constitutive principle of reason authorizing us to extend our conception of the sensuous world beyond all possible experience. It is merely a principle for the enlargement and extension of experience as far as is possible for human faculties. It forbids us to consider any empirical limits as absolute. It is, hence, a principle of reason which, as a rule, dictates how we ought to proceed in our empirical regress, but is unable to anticipate or indicate, prior to the empirical regress, what is given in the object itself. I have termed it 
for this reason, a regulative principle of reason, while the principle of the absolute totality of the series of conditions, as existing in itself and given in the object, is a constitutive cosmological principle. This distinction will at once demonstrate the falsehood of the constitutive principle, and prevent us from attributing, by a transcendental subreptio, objective reality to an idea, which is valid only as a rule. In order to understand the proper meaning of this rule of pure reason, we must notice, first, that it cannot tell us what the object is, but only how the empirical regress is to be proceeded with in order to obtain to the complete conception of the object. If it gave us any information in respect to the former statement, it would be a constitutive principle, a principle impossible from the nature of pure reason. It will not, therefore, enable us to establish any such conclusions as the series of conditions for a given conditioned is in itself finite, or it is infinite. For, in this case, we should be cogitating in the mere idea of absolute totality an object which is not and cannot be given in experience. Inasmuch as we should be attributing a reality objective and independent of the empirical synthesis to a series of phenomena. This idea of reason cannot then be regarded as valid except as a rule for the regressive synthesis in the series of conditions according to which we must proceed from the conditioned through all intermediate and subordinate conditions up to the unconditioned, although this goal is unattained and unattainable. For the absolutely unconditioned cannot be discovered in the sphere of experience. We now proceed to determine clearly our notion of a synthesis which can never be complete. There are two terms commonly employed for this purpose. These terms are regarded as expressions of different and distinguishable notions, although the ground of the distinction has never been clearly exposed. The term employed by the mathematicians is progressus in infinitum. The philosophers prefer the expression progressus in indefinitum. Without detaining the reader with an examination of the reasons for such a distinction, or with remarks on the right or wrong use of the terms, I shall endeavor clearly to determine these conceptions so far as is necessary for the purpose in this critique. We may, with propriety, say of a straight line that it may be produced to infinity. In this case, the distinction between a progressus in infinitum and a progressus in indefinitum is a mere piece of subtlety. For, although when we say, produce a straight line, it is more correct to say in indefinitum than in infinitum, because the former means, produce it as far as you please, the second, you must not cease to produce it. The expression in infinitum is, when we are speaking of the power to do it, perfectly correct, for we can always make it longer if we please, on to infinity. 
and this remark holds good in all cases. When we speak of a progressus, that is, an advancement from the condition to the conditioned, this possible advancement always proceeds to infinity. We may proceed from a given pair in the descending line of generation from father to son, and cogitate a never-ending line of descendants from it. For in such a case, reason does not demand absolute totality in the series, because it does not presuppose it as a condition, and as given, datum, but merely as conditioned, and capable of being given, dabile. Very different is the case with the problem, how far the regress which ascends from the given conditioned to the conditions must extend. Whether, I can say, it is a regress in infinitum or only in indefinitum, and whether, for example, setting out from the human beings at present alive in the world, I may ascend in the series of their ancestors, in infinitum, or whether all that can be said is that, so far as I have proceeded, I have discovered no empirical ground for considering the series limited, so that I am justified, and indeed compelled to search for ancestors still further back, although I am not obliged by the idea of reason to presuppose them. My answer to this question is, if the series is given in empirical intuition as a whole, the regress in the series of its internal conditions proceeds in infinitum, but if only one member of the series is given, from which the regress is to proceed to absolute totality, the regress is possible only in indefinitum. For example, the division of a portion of matter given within certain limits of a body, that is, proceeds in infinitum, for as the condition of this whole is its part, and the condition of the part a part of the part, and so on, and as, in this regress of decomposition, an unconditioned indivisible member of the series of conditions is not to be found, there are no reasons or grounds in experience for stopping in the division, but, on the contrary, the more remote members of the division are actually and empirically given prior to this division, that is to say, the division proceeds to infinity. On the other hand, the series of ancestors of any given human being is not given in its absolute totality in any experience, and yet the regress proceeds from every genealogical member of this series to one still higher, and does not meet with any empirical limit presenting an absolutely unconditioned member of the series. But as the members of such a series are not contained in the empirical intuition of the whole, prior to the regress, this regress does not proceed to infinity, but only in indefinitum, that is, we are called upon to discover other and higher members, which are themselves always conditioned. 
in neither case the regressus in infinitum nor the regressus in indefinitum is the series of conditions to be considered as actually infinite in the object itself. This might be true of things in themselves, but it cannot be asserted of phenomena which, as conditions of each other, are only given in the empirical regress itself. Hence the question no longer is, what is the quantity of this series of conditions in itself, is it finite or infinite, for it is nothing in itself, but how is the empirical regress to be commenced, and how far ought we to proceed with it? And here a signal distinction in the application of this rule becomes apparent. If the whole is given empirically, it is possible to proceed in the series of its internal conditions to infinity. But if the whole is not given, and can only be given by and through the empirical regress, I can only say, it is possible to infinity to proceed to still higher conditions in the series. In the first case, I am justified in asserting that more members are empirically given in the object than I attain to in the regress of decomposition. In the second case, I am justified only in saying that I can always proceed further in the regress because no member of the series is given as absolutely conditioned, and thus a higher member is possible, and an inquiry with regard to it is necessary. In the one case it is necessary to find other members of the series, in the other it is necessary to inquire for others, inasmuch as experience presents no absolute limitation of the regress. For Either you do not possess a perception which absolutely limits your empirical regress, and in this case the regress cannot be regarded as complete, or you do possess such a limitive perception, in which case it is not a part of your series, for that which limits must be distinct from that which is limited by it, and it is incumbent upon you to continue your regress up to this condition and so on. These remarks will be placed in their proper light by their application in the following section. End section 8. This recording is in the public domain.